And I think this is, this is a lot of the problem with the idea of executive function. It rests on a lot of assumptions and in particular this kind of very linear idea of things. And I think this is one thing that has really helped my writing over the last year for sure is, is getting in touch with the idea of it being cyclical. Of, mm-hmm. of, again, not having, you know, you don't have to start at the beginning of the book and go to the end. You're listening to Sluggish. I'm Jesse Meadows, and today I'm talking to Sarah Lewis, an award-winning environmental journalist, writer, and mildly despondent utopian who co-founded Writers HQ, a writing school that she describes as actually a secret cult hell-bent on destroying the patriarchal capitalist hegemony. Sarah's substack, Fictional Sarah, explores how we write, tell stories, and do culture about climate change. So I sat down with her to talk about how our creative processes and the processes of the earth are tied together. Check the show notes for links to some of her work. Sluggish is a brand new baby little podcast. So please, if you like it, leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and make sure you're subscribed at sluggish.substack.com if you want to get episodes and more writing from me in your inbox every week. I promise I will only send you very interesting readings and sometimes pictures of cool bugs. Anyway, my first question for Sarah was what her own writing practice looks like. At the moment, is embarrassingly organized, <laughs> which is the first time in my life I've ever been able to say that. I actually, I'm sitting at my desk right now and I've got shelves up here. Um, I have notebooks, ordered ordered notebooks, which are all indexed, going up to number 25, I think, from the last oh, few wow. years. Um, yeah, right. It's, mental. <laughs> it's, really, it's really crazy. So I do three different types of writing, fiction, nonfiction, and journaling or kind of personal writing journaling kind of comes and goes as and when I need it um and that's just kind of 20 or 30 minutes a day and what I'll do is if I feel like I need to do that for a bit is I'll set a time every day and I'll sit down and do that I guess in terms of logistics uh, I normally drop my kids at school if it's term time come home sit and read it's kind of idyllic sit and read have a cup of tea <laughs> stay out the window and think about stuff uh and then I'll just spend the day writing um yeah, that's obviously like a really simple version. There's kind of like loads wrapped up in that, which is like this constant cycle of reading and planning and talking ideas through with people and um, watching endless video essays obsessively and going, it's fine. My YouTube habit is research, it's fine. And lots of daydreaming. And then I just write endless notes all over the place. I've got bullet journal and I write a lot on my phone and scraps of paper and whatever, email myself. And then eventually I kind of get sick of myself and I bring all together into a draft. So it is kind of chaotic, but I've sort of found a way of working with that so I don't lose stuff in the chaos. But I tend to work in small chunks. This is a thing that I've sort of learned over the last year, actually, I've never been able to do before, where I'll sort of give myself small projects and time periods. So, for example, I'm about to start a new draft of a novel I'm working on. And so before I sort of start, I've got a document where... It's about line exactly what I'm going to do, exactly what the points are. This sounds really boring. I actually love it. But like, how do I approach it? What the time period is doing? Um, and if I don't have those like really clearly delineated, what happens is I just wander off. It's like, just kind of don't do it or I get really stressed or yeah, it doesn't really work for me to do it another way. And I think it's changed a lot in the last year. Um, like I said, I got really ill about a year ago. Um, and as part of my recovery, I kind of really started to understand all the things I really struggled with and like all the blocks I had and all the places where I sabotage myself. Um, and so I've just been really lucky that I've been able to sort of set up support 
um, and kind of corral all my chaos. <laughs> it's, yeah, much more productive. At the moment, I feel like I'm in a really sort of happy place with it, I think, which is great. I also would describe mine as chaotic. And I feel like it's different. I don't know if this is true for you, but like for writing like shorter things like essays, it's fine to be kind of chaotic. Yeah. But then to do a longer thing like a book, I'm realizing that I really need structure because I'm thinking now about writing a book and like I'm going to need to maybe like not be so all over the place to do it. Yeah, it's it's really hard, though, because if your brain naturally works like mm -hmm. what doesn't work or what you can't do is like suddenly change who you are as a person. You can't be like, yeah, well, tomorrow I'm going to be organized and more efficient than I've ever been yeah. in my life for no reason. I'm just going to do it. It doesn't work. So one of the things that has really worked for me, I worked with an ADHD coach or an executive function coach. We'll come back to it later, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, a few years ago, and I found it really helpful just in terms of, um, she was like, so what is your writing process? You know, when you actually finish something, what's that like? I don't know. I just kind of do it. Yeah. I can't tell you what the thing is. It's like intuitive. Yeah, I just sort of shamble about for a bit. And then I go, oh, look, it's kind of like that. Um, but actually, once you sort of drill into that and figure out what the little bits are, um, yeah, it just is, it's a really useful process. And I think what I've sort of found, like I said, is this kind of happy balance of maintaining that sort of chaotic process, because that's really where all the good ideas come from. It's from going, oh, well, now I'm thinking about that other thing and here's the connections, but sort of also putting it in a in a little box <laughs> so you can like all right I'm going to hold that thought here and then structure it so that I can get you know keep on going for the long term do you get like overwhelmed by ideas because I find that I have so many and I'm like idea 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 and I'm like writing them all down and then it's just so much and I don't know what to do <laughs> or how to get out <laughs> of the idea phase yeah very much so yeah absolutely and I uh there's definite phases where all I'm doing is having ideas and being like, oh, yeah, it's this. And, it's, and I started writing them down. I, I would get overwhelmed when I kept them in my head. And it was when I started writing it all down. I chained myself to walk around with a notebook. My notebook is my mm -hmm. dopamine badge. That is <laughs> <laughs> a reward system. We invented at Writers HQ. Is you get the dopamine badge and for doing anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> have to be a good thing. It can be like getting out of bed and you get it. Anyway, so I trained myself to walk around with this notebook. And literally any idea just goes straight in there or it goes in my phone. And yeah, eventually I just sort of reach a tipping point where it just sort of bolts into something bigger. Do you make outlines for things? Because I find that I never, I never really outline stuff. At least like essays. I just kind of like sit down and like things come out and then I write and then I reorganize it. But I started trying to write outlines and I found it really hard because I was like, I never do this. I never structure or like plan ahead because that's just not really how... I work and I don't know how to how to do that or how to like you know go from the the idea phase to like a structured kind of outline yeah it's a really good question and I think I know I know a lot of people who don't plan and they'll just write and for me it's kind of really iterative and it's a bit of everything and I'll sort of like I'll start by kind of blurting out everything that I think about a subject so I'll be like okay I want to write about whatever subject and I'll just start by blurting out everything I think I know or I think about that subject. And then I'll look at it and have a crisis and I'll go, oh, it's all shit. And from that, I'll sort of come up with a bit of an outline, but it's not, it's not like, uh, I don't know, it's nothing, it's nothing amazing. It's more like, in this essay, I will. Yeah. <laughs> and just like a couple of sentences of broadly what I'm trying to do. 
and then I'll kind of go back. And then I just sort of go back and forth between the things, like slowly mm-hmm. kind of growing it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I get it. Like sometimes it is really hard to know what you're doing until you've done it. But do you find that you work like in a cyclical kind of way? You said it was iterative. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely cyclical. So um, I think with fiction, I find it really, actually with both non-fiction as well, I kind of think about it in my head. It feels like, um, it kind of feels like growing a plant because mm-hmm. it's like, all right, I've got this seed of an idea and I'm just kind of like nourishing it and it's just kind of getting bigger and bigger. And yeah, and it is just this constant going back to those kind of first principles of like, oh, what is this thing I'm trying to say? And then it gets to the point where like you have to put it on a trellis. I think that's the hard part for me where I'm like, now I have to put it on the trellis and I have to build the trellis. And like, oh, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But do you find that um, sometimes it just sort of happens on its own? Like it's Mm -hmm. it's a bit like you're pushing a boulder uphill. I'm changing the metaphor now. So (laughs) (laughs) pushing a boulder up the hill and you keep going, keep going, keep going. And then at some point you just sort of tip over the edge and you can't really stop it. And it's like... I'll sit down and look at my notes and think, oh, man, I've got loads to do on this. And then when I actually look at it, I go, oh, no, I just need to actually swap these paragraphs around. And all of a sudden it's just there. But I think that's the whole thing about what your process is and what you're actually doing, whether you're focusing solely on the end goal or whether you're focusing on the practice itself. And I think that can get really complicated for people who are writing for a living because you have to have an end goal. <laughs> Otherwise, mm-hmm. you don't focus things. But yeah. at the same time, you have to maintain the joy of the process. And I think for me, when I'm really in it and when I'm really enjoying, you know, the reading and the thinking um, and trying to come up with smart ass things to say and try to write good jokes. And then I'm just like really, really into that process. Um, it just sort of I get so into that. I kind of don't quite realize that I've made it to the end. It's like a pleasant surprise. Like, oh, well done me. Yay. Yeah. Is there like a really popular piece of writing advice that just like really doesn't work for you? Yeah. So annoyingly, I'm one of those people who has to write every day. And I, I would love to be the sort of person who hates that advice, but it does really work <laughs> for me. I know that's like the number one thing that everybody hates. I think the thing I hate the most is advice around reading more than advice around writing. Mm-hmm. I remember a writing tutor who was this kind of venerable old lady, older lady, who, when I asked her, you know, her key piece of advice are very young, like in my 20s, young enough. And she's very intimidating. And she said, you have to read, read everything. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I remember being so intimidated by that because there's a lot of stuff I don't read. I'm not interested in classics. I'm not interested in like Jane Austen and, you know, the mm-hmm. Brontes and, and any of that kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of the books you're supposed to be into, I guess. I just don't care about it. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I can't do this because I don't, care about those things everyone seems to really care about and I think I just and I do read a lot but not as much as I quotes should um and I think it's taken me a long time to understand that I just consume information differently Mm -hmm. like I'm a real grazer yeah me too it takes a lot for me to go really the sort of initial phase is this real like you know I kind of think of it as like a baleen whale you know (laughs) just with everything in the ocean well sticking um but yeah so it's taken me a long time to come to terms with that and understand that that's fine mm-hmm. people always say that like you have to read a whole book you have to read it all the way through and i really don't for nonfiction, for like fiction yeah. obviously i'll just like read the chapters that i'm like interested in and if the book is super interesting to me then i'll read the whole thing but i find that like that advice that i don't know, or the assumption that you have to read it like cover to cover is just like not 
true or helpful for me? So interesting. So this is the thing that my partner introduced me to a few years ago, not long, like three years ago. We call it ADHD reading. Um, <laughs> and uh, if I'm ever reading over his shoulder, if he's on his phone and it's a nightmare because he's like going up and down and up and down and jumping all over the place. I'm like, no, no, wait. And yeah, this concept, you don't have to read a book from cover to cover. When he explained that to me, I was like, what? This is heresy. But then I've read so much more nonfiction in the last three years mm -hmm. than I ever read before. Because yeah, exactly. You skip forward to the thing you want. And if it's interesting, you can go back a bit and catch up. Mm -hmm. But broadly speaking, a lot of nonfiction books really could just be much shorter essays. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, no, that's, a, that's been a real revelation for me. Well, they like kind of fill them out because there's this like arbitrary word count that publishers want books to be. So I feel like there is a lot of extra stuff in books. I usually read like the intro, which explains kind of like the thesis of the book. And then like, we'll tell you like what the chapters are about. And then I'll go like read the chapters that I'm interested in. And yeah. that, I mean, you can still say I read that book even if you yeah, didn't read that, all the chapters, in my silly. opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also find that like just listening to interviews that authors do on podcasts about their books, you get like all the major points because they just talk about it. So I do that sometimes if I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting, but I don't know if I have time to read it. I'll just listen to like a few interviews and they'll like repeat the same kind of major points. And yeah. so I'm like, okay, I feel like I mostly <laughs> yeah, get it. No, that's, that's the thing I'm just going to be feeling. That feels like a, that feels like an absolute winning kind of life hack, doesn't it? Yeah, all right. You can just tell me, tell me the stuff. I think the main popular advice that I hate, I talked about this on notes the other day, but like when people are like, I'm really bad at time management. And then the advice is just like, double down on the time management. Just try time management harder. I'm like, but how if I'm bad at it already? It's such a sort of neurotypical response, isn't it? Like a complete misunderstanding mm -hmm. of what the thing is. And, and I know that I've mentioned before to you that I had this sort of uh, this executive function coaching that actually really worked for me and I think the reason it really worked because I know other people that it's very much not worked for because mm -hmm. ultimately it does come down to well just do the thing yeah <laughs> I can't do a thing simply do the thing <laughs> obviously um which is a bit like how I feel about CBT which is mm -hmm. oh it upsets you have you tried not letting it upset you yeah just maybe don't <laughs> just yeah just think differently Sure. Okay. And I think one of the reasons it worked for me is because the coach I had was also very, very good at not trying to make me change anything, of just going, okay, what is it you're doing now? And what can we do to kind of just bring it together, you know, rather than like, oh, we'll just write a list. It's like, okay, well, you're already writing stuff down in a number of different places. How can you just bring that together at some point, you know? So what I do at the end of every week, is I just, you know, I'll just write it all down again in a different notebook. It's fine, I know where it all is. And mm -hmm. like, so that's fine. I've not really changed everything, anything. I've just done more of what I'm already doing. But I think this is, this is a lot of the problem with the idea of executive function. It rests on a lot of assumptions. And in particular, this kind of very linear idea of things. And I think this is one thing that has really helped my writing over the last year for sure is, is getting in touch with the idea of it being cyclical. And mm -hmm. again, not having, you know, you don't have to start at the beginning of the book and go to the end. Um, Incidentally, do you have to listen to albums from beginning to end or can you jump around? Um, it depends on the album because like I'll try to listen to it starting from the beginning. And then if the songs are boring, then I just like will skip to the next song that's not boring. But sometimes an album is like really good and I'll listen to it as a whole. 
yeah yeah because I remember so I'm just as we're talking I'm just so realizing how entrenched this idea of mini yarrow I can't say it is in my life like I remember being much younger and listening to albums and just only wanting to listen to one song and being really pissed off because I thought I had to listen to oh. all songs before it uh-huh. I'd never made that connection before of this idea of like having to start from the beginning and get to the end and one of the issues I always came up with when when I was trying to write longer Forms. Uh, writing is this idea that I always thought I had to start at the beginning and work all the way through. And now that I've sort of really got in touch with that idea of working more circular, it's really, really changed everything. And I think, yeah, that's that is kind of very much this problem with the idea of executive function, isn't it? Of like you should be doing things in this one way, and this one way is you write a list, one, two, three, four. You go through your list and you get to the end and then you get a reward. Well, if that doesn't work for you, what are you going to do? Yeah, I think the problem for me with executive function is that it's considered like the way that functioning works. But I see it as like a specific style. It's like the dominant style and it's how the world is organized. So people who don't function in that style are disabled by it. But yeah, it's those assumptions. And I've been reading about... um brain science more. And I started this book called The Entangled Brain. And it's by this neuroscientist who is arguing against the like hierarchical centralized view of the brain, where like the prefrontal cortex is like the command center and everything goes through there. And then it like goes out and controls the rest of the brain. And that's like the kind of justification for the whole executive function concept. And he says that this isn't accurate and that it's actually a bunch of interdependent parts and a whole network and like system that is kind of all working together and so yeah I haven't read I haven't read the whole book yet but (laughs) I really like this this argument yeah it is a really interesting idea isn't it and and again that comes back to the kind of um the idea of linearity Mm -hmm. of like you have the command center and then it you go in a straight line out here and my experience of the world is not that and is never that and I've kind of turned myself upside down and I've, I've done myself a lot of psychic damage yeah. trying to conform to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, but I still find the language of executive function really useful. I, I think in in uh, our emails before this, you asked about how I deal with that contradiction. Mm-hmm. And I've sort of slightly become obsessed with that question. Um, it's a hard question. Um, I'm sorry. It's a hard question. But I think there's, yeah, I've sort of had to break it down into a few different bits. I have a feeling that this is like a new essay series for me brewing mm-hmm. so oh, good yeah because because really, what, what you asked me in the email is like how is the thing that I'd said originally about how can we create the stuff we need to fulfill our sort of basic needs when we're just kind of all really broken from trying to exist and even though that's a question I ask all the time I realized that no one's ever asked me for a specific answer mm-hmm. and I went oh well, no no in in thinking about it I've kind of broken it down into I feel like there's three different parts at the moment this might grow it's like there's the contradiction in and of itself, there's something about the kind of idolatry of productivity. And there's then a sort of third part about um, creativity as an act of resistance and liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in terms of the contradiction, I may be too apathetic about it. I think so. I started writing about climate change mm-hmm. in the early 2000s, so like 20 years ago. And I... Uh, I think I realized really, really quickly that I had to get very okay with hypocrisy and very okay with like holding several true things at once 
because it's such a complicated social issue. There's so much going on. But also I realised that so many of the things I love are predicated on damage and terrible things. And like, Mm -hmm. I remember having a bit of a meltdown in in um, in a grocery shop because I sort of looked around and realised there was nothing I could buy that didn't cause some kind of harm um, mm-hmm. and, you know, real kind of chitty from the good place at the moment. Yeah. I just thought, shit, I've got to get okay with this really quickly because, you know, we live in a dystopia, don't we? Like it's genuinely dystopic and you have mm-hmm. to do bad things to survive. I just think I, ha- I had to get really okay with it really quickly and I just figured I could spend a lot of energy kind of worrying about the inherent contradiction of everything or not. Mm-hmm. In that respect, I feel like it's quite easy for me to kind of shrug and go, yeah, also no, it's not great, but it is what it is, you know, which is possibly too apathetic. But also I think if I got too hung up on it, I just get stuck. I wonder <laughs> if, because I've been thinking about also writing or, or making like a video about the politics of executive function and kind of doing like a critical analysis of it and I wonder if it could be because it's like this language of executive function is something everybody's familiar with and it is like helpful in a lot of ways I wonder if it could be like an entry point to like politicizing some of these things so I've been kind of trying to think of it that way and not being like I never want to use these words because these words are bad but kind of like engaging with the concept and being like this is a real thing in the world and it's how the world is structured, but how do we come up with alternatives to it? Yeah, this is kind of where I was going with the, with the next bit about this sort of idolatry of productivity and, and, and you're absolutely right about the sort of politicization of it. And I think part of the problem is that everything that is researched is funded by capitalists mm-hmm. and anything that is discovered is then weaponized by capitalists and so on forever. You are kind of in this bind, but then it, it's that um, this is a, political category and this is about who gets to be a full human and and who doesn't but also I need this label to access the things I need and also to give me a language to explore my experience of the world and and I think my personal experience is that I spent years sitting around going oh why can't I do this thing or why am I just sitting here or like you know task switching is a particular thing that I just like it's really struggle with um you know, so I'd be like, well, what? I've just done a thing. Why can I now do another thing? And it wasn't until I discovered the language of, of executive functioning that I went, oh, right. Okay. So the problem I have is specifically this. So now I can use that language to find ways of making this stuff easier or different. Um, yeah. Like you say, it's, it is then an avenue into a more political conversation. Certainly at Writers HQ, so much of what we were doing was around supporting writers to write more and to create often using the language of executive function. But so many people would come to me and say, oh, well, I want to be more productive. And the first thing I would say is, why? And what do you mean by that? Yeah. And actually, almost invariably, what I mean is, I want to live a more connected and creative life, which is different, a very different thing to being yeah. productive. So it's a kind of duality, isn't it, between, okay, well, this is a really useful language for explaining these problems versus this is some kind of like weaponized LinkedIn kind of stick to be yourself with and make you do more shit. And yeah, I think, yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because you want to do things. And when you have problems with executive functioning, you can't do stuff. And that stuff might be activism or political or whatever. Well, and you like have to do stuff and, you know, you have to work. And that whole world of work is set up in an executive functioning style. So 
yeah, it's not really something most people can opt out of. So you kind of have to figure out how to, I don't know, like fake your way through it or or like workarounds for it. I think the word executive also is really interesting because people don't usually make the connection that like that's how like our government and corporations are set up also. And you were saying about how like science is determined by capitalists who fund it. And also the ideas that come out of science, I think, are determined by the culture that the science is being done in. Mm. So, yeah, I think of it as like a CEO method of functioning. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, and I've been talking about my partner a lot, and it's just, I think mm-hmm. it's really relevant here. So he's diagnosed, officially diagnosed with, um, he's almost got a full house. He's got ADHD, uh, he's autistic, and he's dyspraxic and dyslexic on paper. Mm-hmm. Which I think is another conversation about what this spectrum actually is and what these categories actually are. And let's 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 part of mm-hmm. now. But and he is I mean, he'd be the first person to say he's absolutely terrible at capitalism. Like you can't mm-hmm. it's really, really Same. fucking hard for him. <laughs> Especially in this kind of very sort of contemporary workplace, which is all about bureaucracy, right? You know, you know, you say, Okay, you want to be a teacher, well, sorry, sixty percent of your job is Finishing forms and doing paperwork, yeah. and that really excludes such a huge number of people doing those jobs, you know. And he's so he's terrible at that, but at the same time, he's like the best person I know. He does so much of the um, wife work, again quotes that like I just I can't do, or that I despise, or because I've got my own shit going on. Um, and so often he will get massively despondent really miserable about his perceived failings and about how useless he thinks he is. And I'm like, oh my God, like, look at everything you've done today for our family. Like, look at, mm-hmm. look at all this stuff. And, you know, all this stuff that I just could not, could not do. There's kind of, I don't know, it's such an interesting kind of um, intersection of things there because he's sort of taking on that valueless women's work, the invisible labour in a way, but he's somehow combining that with the language of executive function neurodivergence to kind of hate himself for it and it's like even though every day he's doing things he's he's executing tasks constantly right but he feels like he's not doing anything because it's not bringing home any money yeah and you could frame that in a sort of patriarchal lens and say well that's just straight up sexism because you know he's he's doing the the wife work but i think there's a really interesting case to be made viewing that through the kind of politics of executive function as well you know, mm-hmm. this idea that there's, I think in your, uh, I'm making very broad sweeping generalizations, mm-hmm. but I don't think there's a stay at home mom on the planet who'd say they don't do anything. They'd yeah. say, oh, fucking hard. All day long. <laughs> All day long, yeah. but it's not valued. Mm-hmm. So for him to say, oh, well, I never do anything, it's like, it's just not true, you know? Well, it goes back to like what people mean by productivity. Mm. Which if you think productivity is making money and like yeah. having a career, you know, but yeah, stay-at-home moms are super productive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know, I guess it's just one of the ways that, that, that it's abused, isn't it, that, that those ideas are abused. But equally, you know, I've spent years supporting writers to sort of build a writing practice that works for them, using a lot of the language of executive function and to support people to find specific ways of working with them and have a lot of success. So but maybe, yeah, maybe part of that is I've never been particularly prescriptive. I've been like, all right. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, how does that work for you? There's a difference between being like, I want to do executive function because I want to write and writing makes me feel good and fulfills me. 
intrinsically and being like, I want to do executive function because of societal expectations or to achieve career milestones or like outside extrinsic motivations. Yeah. It's it's yeah. about like choice. Like, are you choosing it for something that you want? Or are, you, are you choosing it because you have to do it because somebody else is telling you that you have to do it? Yeah. You wrote something recently that I thought was very interesting. Um, I'm going to quote you. The inner world of the creative and the external world of the environment struggle for the same reasons. And I'm wondering how you think that these struggles are connected. Yeah. Well, it's it's all about exploitation, isn't it? It just comes down to these kind of wildly extractive uh, economy. I'm trying not to just go, capitalism is a problem. Because it is, it's, it's, um, it's this idea of limitless growth, Mm. you know, and production that we just have to keep producing these things constantly. Otherwise something terrible will happen. Unclear what the terrible thing is. Um, And yeah, it's just that we're all massively overworked. People are massively Mm -hmm. overworked. The world is massively overworked. And all of these problems, you know, do center around this one single exploitative point. And it really is as simple as that. Like, I kind of really wish there was more to say about it than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're all so tired. Like, I look around and I just see everyone who's exhausted. And there's so, so many people who I talk to, writers and creative types, who are struggling to get things done. You know, they want to make, they want to write their stories and they can't. So I go, okay, why not? what's going on let's let's sort of look at your day let's look at how you're feeling and they're just miserable you know and they're like working these ridiculous jobs that they might not hate necessarily but are just taking everything they've got and they're always trying to run their home lives and it's just it's just too much it's absolutely too much and of course you can't create anything and of course you can't have the time and the space you need to make beautiful things when you're essentially um not not only like massively burnt out and overworked. And I do think a lot, I know that the term burnout is quite overused, but I do think the vast majority of people are operating in a permanent state of burnout. They've just sort of found a way of like plodding on, you know? Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's built in. That's not, that's not a bug. Mm -hmm. That's that's a feature, you know? Yeah. I think that that theme of limitlessness keeps coming up for me and like everything that I write about. Especially Mm. because I've been really interested in like the self-help, self-improvement wellness world lately. And they're always just talking about like pushing past your limits and um, talking about your full potential constantly. If I hear that phrase one more time, (laughs) gonna scream. (laughs) To me, I'm just like, but you have limits. Like a human body has limits and that's not something to be ashamed of or to try to like push past. Mm. You just have to accept it. But I think, Yeah. yeah, because the society and like economy we live in is built on this idea that there are no limits, then we also have to see ourselves that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I see a lot is people talking about the real world. Do you find this? Welcome to the real world. Yeah. You've got to work hard. It's the real world. And it's like, is it just this thing we came up with that seemed like a good idea and now a whole bunch of people are really rich? I don't know. I don't think that's the real world. Um, had a, a comment on that in a world out of world essay. I had to delete because the guy got really abusive, which was about, because I think in the essay I'd said something about I'm, I'm not anti-productivity per se, but the kind of productivity I want is like art and creativity and food 
it's kind of it, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and he got really uppity about, oh, well, in the real world, I want a, I want a plumber to fix my pipes who yeah. isn't like daydreaming about some book. And I was like, yeah, cool. It's not quite what I was saying. <laughs> like, I still want plumbers, you know. I'm yeah. not saying to do with the plumbers. <laughs> They're certainly not the first ones against the wall in the revolution. But like, yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's like as if valuing art and creativity is like naive which is really sad honestly because that's what we're taught that like the humanities don't matter it's all about the math and and making the numbers go up (laughs) it's bad but yeah the line goes up yeah I just I don't know I just feel like the real world could be very different yeah you've written that the stories that we have about climate change are inadequate or, or not working for us and that we need new stories what do you think those stories look like this is a really good question. I think um, well, I have a lot of thoughts about this. And I think it, it will probably change daily. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll probably have a different answer. I think there's a real kind of, um, I hate to say this because it feels really offensive to a lot of writers who I know like really put their heart and soul into the thing they're doing. But just feel like there's this real lack of imagination at the moment. You know, there's just like... Um, dystopia everywhere and there's a lot of stories about technology and a lot around sort of isolation and confusion I know all of those things are valid obviously and I enjoy a lot of them I love a good apocalypse um as much as the next person but uh, yeah I get really frustrated because I think there's so much more out there that we could be talking about and there's a real block on this issue and one thing I really want to look at which is a bit of a segue but I want to look about uh, research how much is straight up censorship how much is like sponsors going no we can't talk about climate change and how much is kind of a bit more psychological and there is obviously utopian fiction but i don't think it's as you know there's a whole solar punk movement which is great but i don't think it's as simple as over here we've got dystopia and over here we've got utopia and what i guess what i really want is um i just want some really good contemporary literature about how we live now and exploring that Maybe it is out there. I hope it is. And I hope that somebody who hears this will be like, wait a minute, you haven't read this book, mm-hmm. which is now I'm really here for it. And I think that, but I think there's this really long history in fiction, particularly of writers who, um, or cultures that have to look at issues obliquely because it's too traumatic to look at it directly. And uh, Latin American magical realism is basically that, like the history of colonialism and slavery is so awful and traumatic. Can't talk about it directly. You have to come into it in these magical ways. Um, uh, Godzilla as well, which is about the nuclear bombs dropped on, on Japan. And again, it's kind of saying the things without saying the things because it's all these subjects are so big. And I think in terms of films, there's a lot more direct climate change in, in novels. But again, it's all dystopic. So what I see in films is a lot of what I've sort of started calling climate coding, um, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of apocalypse and we've got, but apocalypse is caused by, I wrote a list the other day. <laughs> like I might not have everything. We've got zombies, got viruses, comets, nukes, mm-hmm. and occasionally an unspecified event. Mm-hmm. But I think that's it. I think they're the apocalypses we have. But it's never directly climate change. And I think that's really, really interesting. Um, the Yeah, like corporate sponsorship, censorship is an interesting angle. But I think the artistic struggles around conceptualising that as a story is fascinating because like like we're here you know we're actually living in the apocalypse Mm -hmm. so yeah you can conceptualize it because 
is right here. And I guess this is kind of the thing that I really want to explore in, in my Substack is like, what, what is this? Like, what is it we're looking at? Yeah, I just wrote a whole thing about Disney, which I'm slightly obsessed with. Um, I've got two young kids who watch a lot of Disney. Um, that's my excuse. And, and I see it everywhere and everything they're producing. It's just like seeping into these climate stories, just seeping into all their big hits. And I don't think they realise that it's happening. To me, that's really, really exciting. I'm just really interesting. Um, and yeah, so the none of which answered your question, actually. That was a big, long ramble. What you said is, what do we need? I think we need stories about hyper-individualisation or rather not that, like how we exist in a community. And um, I think we need a lot of uh, real polyphonic stories with lots of voices where we don't have a single hero, the classic, your classic kind of quest, you know, like your sort of Star Wars construction of a, of a story. It's a really questionable patriarchal story structure. Joseph Campbell, who, who wrote The Hero's Journey, uh, was very pro-Nazi. I think there's, there's a lot. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. There's an amazing Maggie Mayfish video essay about it. And it's something I want to write about a bit more as well. It, it's also a very white Western story construction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of other ways of, of telling stories. But this particular one makes money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just think there's a lot of ways we can do this better. And there's a lot more interesting ways of existing that doesn't boil down to this idea of one hero you know, mm-hmm. or we all have to be heroes. There's a brilliant Rebecca Solnit essay called When the Hero is the Problem. And it's about this problem of the figurehead, which is essentially what all our stories are about. Um, so, yeah, I really want to see more of that kind of polyphonic voice and stories where we really reimagine what nature is and what our relationship to nature is and how we exist within it. You know, it's not the backdrop to the story Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not you don't you don't go out into the forest and find yourself and then come back into the city it's not it doesn't exist as a foil for the hero to do his story it is the story you know mm-hmm. and and i think there's there's so much interesting stuff to talk about in how we sort of place ourselves in this hierarchy of like well don't worry about the soil that's just a you know um and one thing I'm slightly obsessed with at the moment is um, stories that come out of uh, somatic writing. So there's this uh, author called Lydia Yuknovich, who I'm just like the most pathetic fangirl of. This is her, somatic writing is her term. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's kind of using the experience of the body to access a deeper human truth, basically, rather than just sitting in our brains going, oh, going to write something very clever. And... I just and and this just all comes back to this idea of you know, a broader connection, um, and I, I'm just really fascinated as to what those stories are. I wonder if you think I just my brain just like connected back to the beginning of our conversation, but I wonder if you think that like somatic writing is kind of like anti-executive function because if you're like writing from the body, I don't know. I've literally never heard of it, so maybe I'm wrong about what it is. But if you're writing from the body and not from like your head, then yeah, it sounds to me kind of the opposite of an executive function. Yeah, very much so. I hadn't even thought of that, but I think you're exactly right. And I think it's, um, in a way, it's that kind of gestalt therapeutic method, isn't it? Of like, okay, how are you feeling right now? Where in your body is it? Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so you're upset about this thing. Where in your body are you feeling that? And then where do you go from there? I think a lot of neurodivergent people especially have, you know, it's quite documented that 
uh, what's it called? Is it not elixophemia, the other one where you can't relate the feelings in your body to what the emotions are? Yeah, elixophemia. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I see this all the time as a as a feature of neurodivergent people, and I just think I don't know. I think all neurodivergent people feel things way more strongly than everybody <laughs> than your neurotypicals. If you're going to separate people like that. It's just that they've been told to shut the fuck up all their lives. Yeah. So they just repress mm-hmm. it. And actually, yeah, um, yeah, there's so much power in reconnecting to what those sensations are. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting idea. I'm going to have to read around that. <laughs> Somatic writing versus executive function. Yes, yeah. I'm here for it. Do you have any, oh wait, I guess we did talk about favorite books that you have. You mentioned a few, what was her name the, that you're obsessed with? Oh, Lydia Yipnovich. So she's got two books that I think are amazing. One's called Thrust um, and one is called The Book of Joan. Thrust is like, oh, it's just, it's about this young girl who basically can, well, the the idea is is she can kind of just travel through time carrying important objects backwards and forwards and she kind of goes around collecting all these lost children and like taking them to the future where they're safe which sounds much more kind of sci-fi than it actually is. It's really just a whole bunch of like really kinky, dysfunctional people like <laughs> that's being filthy and wrong all over the place. Um, but it's so much around like what freedom actually is and, you know, what it is we're trying to do here, you know. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's just, I found it just incredibly powerful. And the Book of Joan is a kind of futuristic Joan of Arc retelling where Joan, the Joan character um, has the power to kind of, talk to the earth and manipulate the earth and it's just great it's just really really good um so i'm really into that i'm really into the book i've just read called everything for everyone um an oral history of the new york commune set in 2052 i'm into those authors actually my sub stack in a couple of weeks um so it's it's an ethnography of the future from the perspective of a kind of post-capitalist post-gender world it's just really great it's kind of um, it's this world that's kind of still emerging. Mm-hmm. Non-fiction, there's a great a book called The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh, which is kind of this academic exploration of why we can't or we're not writing about climate change. There's a uh, This One Sky Day by Leonie Ross, which is just joyful, absolutely joyful from head to toe. I loved it, uh, which is just kind of about um, how the land kind of turns on people when they're not behaving, which sounds very religious, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's not, mm-hmm. it's actually like, yeah, not like that. Um, I've actually been working with Leonie on some of my own fiction and I'm such a pathetic fangirl every time we talk. <laughs> I'm so embarrassing. Yeah. But yeah, so that's great. Uh, I've got more. I can keep on going. I've got more. Yeah. So there's a couple of short stories I think are really, really good. There's uh, Karen Russell's The Gondoliers. Oh, I love her. She wrote Swamplandia, right? Yes. Yeah. I love that book because I grew up in Florida and it was very like, um, I just related to it so much because those are like yeah. landscapes that I grew up in. Yeah, that's um, as I've got that on my list, it's just one that I've not read. I started it and then got struck in something else. But she's got this amazing short story called Orange World as well, which is just incredible. But the gondoliers is, um, yeah, it's kind of future humans who have evolved, but they've kind of evolved echolocation. It's this young girl kind of, she's kind of thanking us. She's kind of saying... It must have been terrible for you guys, but you gave me this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I just thought that was a really interesting take. Um, yeah. And there's a, what else is there? Anything by Ursula K. Le Guin, obviously. Oh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. like absolute master. The Dispossessed was a real game changer for me in terms of understanding. Could be done in a novel. I actually just started 
trying to read that, but I'm having a lot of trouble reading fiction lately just because I'm yeah. in a mode where I want to learn stuff and I find I have to, I need to be in a different mode to read fiction or else I'm like distracted, but I have it. Uh, I read like a couple chapters. I know it's like a yeah. classic. I need to finish it. Yeah, you will learn stuff. It's basically mm -hmm. her manifesto on anarcho-communism. It's great. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. There's, there's some fascinating moments in it. Awesome. I'm going to add all of those to my list, which is already extremely long. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Do you want to tell people how they can find your work and how they can follow you on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Substack. Uh, I am fictionalsarah.substack.com. You can subscribe there. Um, I'm also, I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram and Blue Sky. Still on Twitter very occasionally. Not, <laughs> not very often because it's awful. Um, but I'm fictional Sarah everywhere. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been super interesting. I have like new ideas now. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's add to my list of things to write. So, yeah, uh -huh. no, thank you. Really appreciate it. It's been great. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help make sure more people hear it, do leave a nice review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're not already subscribed, hand over your email at sluggish.substack.com to get these episodes in your inbox. Thank you for listening and come back to Slugtown very soon.